Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. In the heart of Philadelphia, in a Georgian brick building that still stands, one of the most extraordinary events in the history of the world took place. There, in what is today called Independence Hall, over the course of about 100 days in the summer of 1787, some of the most brilliant men of that or any other era created what would become the constitution of a new country. They were creating the legal foundation for a form of government that had never been tried before. And they were creating the possibility and the golden and glorious promise of something called the United States of America. The men in that room were an astounding array of the leading lights of American history. George Washington was there, along with Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and Roger Sherman, among others. No one could reasonably debate whether the 4,200-word document they ended up with is one of the greatest documents in the history of the world. If its emergence there was not quite as unprecedented as... um, Atheda's uh, birth from Zeus, it is close enough to warrant comparison and amazement. The Constitution was a ship of state that the founders launched onto history's ocean that summer, the likes of which had never before been seen. The world googled at it. They also wondered what would become of this great and strange thing. Would it sail long or soon sink? No one could know. And if it was to succeed and last, precisely how would it do that? How could it, being so very fragile, how and why should it float for so long? And yet it did. Whatever it was that they created that summer in that building has so grown and flourished in the more than two centuries following that it is simply without equal. But who could know in 1787 what would spring from the nation made possible by that document created in those 100 days? No one but God. Today, we know that in historical terms, the nation there formed has since soared across the heavens like no other. But in 1787, it still only pointed toward the future like an arrow in a cocked bow. The potential power in that bow was incalculable. But the promise of the arrow's flight had intrigued much of the world. It held great promise in many ways because it was itself a promise to every American, present and future, and to everyone in the world beyond America, too. In his famous I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King Jr. said that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence before it constituted a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. It was a promise that was not fulfilled instantly and that was not fulfilled in King's Day and that is not yet fulfilled in ours, at least not in full. It is a promise that is being fulfilled and that must keep on being fulfilled. And we are the ones who must fulfill it, who must keep that promise. But what is required of us to keep that promise and to continue to fulfill it? What is required of us, of each one of us, who are we the people, is something we have mostly forgotten. Benjamin Franklin sums it all up in one phrase, which we'll explain in a moment. But the main point is that each of us who call ourselves Americans has a great duty to keep that promise. And if we don't do our duty toward keeping that promise, our nation will soon cease to exist in any real sense. If that sounds overly dramatic keep listening. It is not enough for us merely to exist as a people, doing the minimum of simply obeying our laws and minding our own business. Much more is required of Americans if America is to truly be America. 
In Dickens' A Christmas Carol, when Marley's ghost confronts Scrooge, Scrooge wonders at Marley's chains. What has his old business partner done to deserve such punishment? But you are always a good man of business, Jacob, Scrooge says. To which Marley gives a forceful response. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Marley's bracing words might well suffice to sum up our situation as a nation. We cannot pretend that it's sufficient for us to mind our own business. The founders understood that the republic that came into being in 1787 could not continue long if every American did not make the business of that republic his or her business. They understood that America would not flourish without great help from all Americans. That was the only way it would work and the only way it could work. The government they had given us was something precious and fragile, a newborn babe for whom all of us all of us were obliged to care. The ordered liberties and how they were to work together required a citizenry devoted to keeping them in order, so we were all in it together, else it would not work. So the promise of America in 1787 was a promise to all future Americans, as Dr. King reminds us, as far into the future as we were willing to keep that promise. The possibility of our continuing to keep that promise would vanish if we failed to take our duties seriously. Future Americans depend on present-day Americans doing their duty in this, and there's even more to it than that. Because in the end, the promise of this nation was also a promise to the whole world beyond this nation. The Constitution given to us that 1787 was a sufficient beginning. It was the foundation of the United States of America, but merely existing and merely obeying the laws that stem from that Constitution was hardly what the founders had in mind. The idea that our government is we the people is not a corny idea that doesn't mean much. It is something that is utterly real. It is, in fact, an idea of great genius and is the main operating principle by which this nation has stayed alive and has expanded its freedoms over two centuries. But once we, the people, begin to forget that and cease to do what is necessary as Americans, it all begins to fall apart. And alas, we have gone a long way toward forgetting that and toward ceasing to do what is necessary as Americans. We are in desperate, indeed urgent, need of a primer on these vital things. We can never say we have fulfilled the promise. It is an endless project, but continuing to fulfill that promise is at the very heart of what it means to be the United States of America. It is who we are. To cease doing what is necessary along these lines is to cease existing. But we are today in very real danger of doing just that, of becoming America in name only. I believe our situation in present-day America is grave, but not discouraging. In fact, by way of encouragement, before we consider what we have forgotten and what we must do, let's first acknowledge that despite our difficulties and considerable failings, much of America's promise has already been fulfilled, and spectacularly so, far beyond what anyone might have imagined. For example, let's remember that the country created in that room in Philadelphia soon swelled westward to the mighty Mississippi, and then crossed that divide to balloon further westward to fill the entire continent from one blue ocean to the other. Let's remember that eight decades after that summer, the country would, in the bloodletting of a terrible civil war, legally cancel the shameful original sin of slavery. Let's remember that it would afterward create inventions unimaginable to previous generations, outracing sound via the telegraph and flooding silences with the music of the phonograph and harnessing electricity to illuminate the darkness with delicate glass bulbs. And it would invent the motion picture so that people in darkened theaters could dream while still awake. And it would loft human beings into the world of the birds above our heads 
and winged apparatuses that would eventually soar across continents and then across oceans, and it would assemble via assembly line innovation and make the horseless carriage available to the working man. It would invent baseball and football and basketball, and it would in two wars defend civilization and democracy from totalitarian tyranny, and it would invent jazz and blues and rock and roll, and it would invent a device that could make what was happening in one place appear instantly to other people thousands of miles away, and it would make this device available to almost everyone, and it would vault our species beyond Earth's gravity and onto other heavenly bodies, depositing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve men onto the white surface of the moon. It would invent the computer, and it would invent the internet with its endless information going to and fro over the surface of the Earth. All these things and so many more were made possible by that one document written in that hot room in Philadelphia over the course of 100 days, that promise to the future of the world. But we must again remind ourselves that the Constitution guaranteed none of these future things. The promise of that document has been kept to the extent that so much has been done thus far, but as I have said, its promises much more still to be kept, which must be kept now and tomorrow by you and by me. And this vital idea that everything promised by the Constitution depended on the people of the newly formed country was not lost on those in that room in Philadelphia, as the following story makes clear. Dr. James McHenry, a delegate from Maryland, was at age 34, one of the youngest men at the convention. As things were breaking up at the end of the last day, McHenry was privileged to witness a historic exchange, and soon thereafter recorded it in his notes, which have survived. If not for his notes, we would have no record that this exchange ever happened. So what did the young doctor write? McHenry wrote that when Benjamin Franklin emerged from the building that day, he was accosted by a certain Mrs. Powell of Philadelphia. Whether she was a young woman or an old, we don't know. But he was then 81 years old, the oldest delegate, who for his part in those hallowed proceedings had come to be known as the sage of the Constitution. Franklin had by that time lived in Philadelphia 64 years since arriving there in 1723 at the age of 17. So for all we know, he knew this now mythical and otherwise forgotten Mrs. Powell, who has come to stand for all of America since that day when she spoke to Franklin in a tone that seems to bespeak some degree of familiarity. According to McHenry, Mrs. Powell put her question to Franklin directly. Well, doctor, she asked him, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin, who was rarely short of words or wit, shot back, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And there it was. If you can keep it. Because the issue of whether we can keep the republic is so tremendously important. We need to frame it in another way. We need to think about what it means to keep something, as Franklin said. It is as the keeping of a candle in the darkness, of keeping it through a night, of keeping it aflame. One thing we know, what Franklin meant was what we have been talking about and what everyone in the Constitutional Convention understood, that whatever document they ended up with and whatever government it described and created could be only a beginning. The people themselves would have to do a lot to make it work. A government in which the people would govern themselves would be fragile and would require the people's attention in a way that no other government would. If it had been a monarchy or some other form of government with equally strong monarch leanings, it would not have been up to the people to keep anything. The monarch or the powers of the monarchy would do all the keeping that was necessary and the role of the people would be non-existent. But because what the founders created was a republic, the very opposite would be true. It would be we, we the people, in the famous phrase, who must keep it. So the Constitution was a pointer to something beyond itself, a promise. 
one that could be broken or kept by the people to whom it was entrusted. There was no way that the words on the paper themselves could guarantee that anyone would abide by what they said, nor that the great promise of that document would be kept. By themselves, the words were merely deaf, dumb, and mute shapes of inert black ink. What power did they have lying there to create a country or to cause millions of people to behave in such a way that those people might flourish in future decades and centuries and might even bless others in other countries exporting their ideas around the world? None. This, then, was the gamble of the founders, one that placed tremendous trust in the people to whom they bequeathed this fragile form of government. So the question must be, why? Why did they trust the people of the republic to keep the republic? The only answer to that question is that they knew the people of the American colonies at the end of the 18th century were prepared for the job of keeping it. Many factors had conspired to prepare them, to make them the perfect candidates to keep the republic entrusted to them, able to do what no one had ever done in the history of the world, to govern themselves. For one thing, they were the heirs of the tradition of British law going all the way back to the Magna Carta in 1215. For another, because of the religious disparity among them, they had a deep and abiding respect for religious freedom and were well practiced in living with those who held different beliefs from their own. And finally, because of their general religiousness, many of them had a... Had a commitment to their faith communities that made them already likely to be governing themselves in ways that made the reigning government authority nearly redundant. Thus they were uniquely prepared for this responsibility and the founders could dream of entrusting it to them and did entrust it to them. So by itself the constitution could do very little. What it promised would require the efforts of all those who thenceforth call themselves Americans. It was they who must keep it, the republic and the grand and noble promise of that republic. That is the wonderful, spectacular genius of it all, and the terrible, sobering danger of it all, too. The document and the men who created it put these unimaginably great and fragile things in the hands of the people. So these things, still unimaginably great and fragile, are in our hands now, this minute. We are ourselves, this moment, the keepers of the flame of liberty, and the ones charged by Franklin and the other founders, and by history, past, present, and future, with the keeping of this grand promise to the world. If you are an American, you have agreed to join that group to keep the republic Franklin spoke of that day. You really ought to know what you've gotten yourself into. In fact, if we haven't known about this, and most of us have not, then there would be a profound disconnect in our relationship with our country. If we Americans cease to know that we are part of that group charged with the terrible and wonderful burden of keeping this glorious promise, the promise is already being broken and will soon be irrevocably so. I'm afraid we are in serious danger of letting the flame of liberty go out in our generation, so it is genuinely urgent that we understand where we are and that we do all that we can to make sure that we do not let this flame of ordered liberty given to us by the founders go out. We must do it not just for our own sake, but also for the sake of all those waiting for us to light their candles, so to speak. We must do what we can to see what we have been given and to do what is expected of us. We have a charge to keep. This book is about seeing that we understand this again, that we keep the charge, that republic, that glorious promise. That's the introduction. Well, part of the introduction. I didn't read the whole thing because it is kind of lengthy. But that is part of the introduction to If You Can Keep It by Eric Metaxas, The Forgotten Promise of American Liberty. This is an excellent book. On Friday, we are going to give away this book and you can read more about keeping the, the promise of liberty 
really good book. Friday morning on The Frittle Show, we are going to give this book away. It's If You Can Keep It from Eric Metaxas. You're listening to The Frittle Show on 101.1 FM KVXL. We're streaming online at kvxl101.com. You can also find us on SoundClues. That's not it. It's SoundCloud and iTunes. If you just put in the search bar, The Frittle Show, boom, done, you're there. We're continuing our I Love America and American Heroes week here. That's why we're talking about the Declaration. We're talking about the Constitution. We're talking about America all week long. We're doing some of our our normal things as well, but for the most part, we are just talking about America and issues that are facing America, talking about our history. We're talking about the individuals, the men that signed our founding documents and the principles that made our country great. At the bottom of the hour, in just a few minutes, we're going to have retired Army Colonel Kurt Schlichter is going to be on the line with us. He, uh, He's a senior columnist at Town Hall. You've probably seen him on Fox News. A lot of wisdom and uh, always a lot of fun as well. So we'll have him with us momentarily here. I also wanted to remind you that today's programming is brought to you by Krispy Kreme Donuts Fundraising Opportunities. Krispy Kreme fundraisers are available year-round. They can take place over one to two days or one to two weeks. If your educational, religious community, or charitable cause is looking for a fun way to meet your financial goals, Krispy Kreme can help. Krispy Kreme provides free fundraising materials for your use, and you can visit KrispyKreme.com slash fundraising or your local Krispy Kreme to learn more. Our thanks to Krispy Kreme for their support of KVXL programming. So before we go to the break, I just want to say this. Because when I'm reading this from Eric Metaxas and when I'm thinking about America and thinking about freedom, you know, and I've talked about this on the show before, but I think oftentimes we don't realize how incredibly awesome the gift of America is and how blessed we are to live in this nation. I mean, we have freedom of speech. We have freedom of religion. We have freedom of the press. We're able to vote and to assemble and to worship as we please. And not only do we have rights that much of the rest of the world can only dream of, but our standard of living is unparalleled. I mean, seriously, have you ever marveled at the fact that you can turn a spigot on your water faucet inside your house and it's hot or cold depending on which knob you turn? It, it, it just happens. You don't have to do any work to make that happen. You have light with the flick of a switch. You don't have to melt wax or make candles or burn candles unless you want to. And you can drive from one end of the country to another. You can make your house hot or cold. You, you can eat food that is nutritious and you don't have to worry about if the water coming out of your faucet or, or running down the, the stream outside is clean. We have been so incredibly blessed in this country and I fear that we take so very, very much of it for granted. So today my challenge to you is this. Don't complain about your country. Be grateful for it. Find something today to be grateful for that you have, that you are blessed with because you are an American. And yes, you, you could say, you know, freedom of speech or freedom of religion, and those are great things, and, I, and you should be thankful for those, but I want you to think beyond that. Just think of something practical that you have because you are an American, and thank God for giving you the privilege and the responsibility of being an American and living in this great country. 
So again, all this week we're going to continue talking about America, what made her great, what keeps her great. Uh, We'll talk about signers of the Declaration and the Constitution. I hope you're enjoying it. I know I am. It's going to be a a great week just celebrating our country. I uh, hope you'll stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. Colonel Kurt Schlichter is going to be joining us. We're going to play in God We Still Trust, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Don't go away. And welcome back. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM here in Las Vegas. We have retired Army Colonel, senior columnist at Town Hall. He's a lawyer. Don't hold that against him. And you've probably seen him on Fox News. Kurt Schlichter is with us. Schlichter is a very, I'm not sure if that's an American name. I'm not sure if we can have you on our I Love America Week. Well, look, it's a uh, it's an Indonesian name, obviously. Obviously, uh, you know the the uh, Schlichters of Jakarta uh, with their uh, you know traditional lederhosen. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's just let's just talk because I yes we're not going to make any progress if we go down that path. Um, there's there's nothing there. There's, there's an end. Well, and by the way, I want to thank you for off the air reiterating your FCC warning to me after our legendary first radio show. Yes. I'm surprised you still remember that. My, uh... Uh, well, I, I mostly remember your reaction to me coming on with a stream of obscenities for the first 30 seconds, not realizing it was a family show instead of a, uh, a uh, 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 all, no holds barred uh, 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 uh Fast. Yes. What I remember about that is my producer at the time, after the show, being like, so, um, about that, how, how did you want to do the podcast? And so we had a, we had a fun little discussion about, about moving forward and how to properly prompt <laughs> guests. It was a good learning experience for me, so I'm grateful to you, because now, regardless of who it is, I, I let everyone know beforehand, oh, by the way, you know... This is a family show, and also we're live, so the FCC, yeah, FCC thing that kind of applies. But yeah. So I guess we're not going to be talking about Bob Crane's personal life. No, no, not not this time. However, if you would like okay. to whistle the Hogan's Heroes theme song, that would be okay because you know things like that. All right, so you had a piece uh, in Town Hall ironically, on Independence Day, titled, You Owe Them Nothing, Not Respect, Not Loyalty, Not Obedience. And uh, after yesterday's ruling from the FBI, if you want to call it a ruling, I don't know what we want to call it, but after that oh, decision, call... whatever it is, it, your your piece seems so much more relevant. I mean, not that it wasn't relevant on Independence Day, but after yesterday, it just seems completely relevant. It, it seemed in about 24 hours, thanks to uh, Director Comey's, uh, you know, obscene misapplication of the law. I think I got like 6,000 uh, 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 shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I'm a lawyer, uh, some years. I was in the Army about 28 years. I handled classified material, held a high clearance. So I know a little about this stuff. And... You know, for 15 minutes, he laid out a devastating closing argument uh, at a criminal trial. And at the end of it, I expected him to say, and for that reason, I expect you to find the defending guilty on, you know, yeah. 18 United States Code uh, 1924 and 793 half. 
probably the obstruction of justice ones, the false statements to federal officer ones. Um, and she went completely the opposite way. And it was stunning. Now, you need to understand here, and your listeners need to understand here, there's no debate mm-hmm. on where reasonable people differ. The statute is very, very clear about what it says. It says gross negligence. He used the words extreme carelessness, which are from custom. Uh, they are interchangeable. The only conclusion that you get from James Comey's state uh, is that she should have been in, uh, he should have recommended that the federal prosecutors indict her. There's, I mean, there, there's the, the idea that no reasonable prosecutor would bring charges is absolutely in 180. No reasonable federal prosecutor would not bring charges. And in fact, there are numerous people, both in jail and facing charges, for doing significantly less, and properly so. Yeah, well, um, and, and he basically just, said, he, he basically said, now don't get me wrong, if this was anyone else, they, they would be facing another uh, outcome. But, you know, in this instance, it's not really a big deal. Like, he, Yeah, like, I mean, uh, it's, it, look, so why does the law apply to you and me? I, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm, I was driving here this morning, and with your peace in mind, I'm sitting at the stoplight going, why, why am I stopping? Does this, is this relevant? Do I have to obey this one? No, I actually well, wasn't know, thinking that because I have many police officers who are friends, but I didn't want to get pulled over by any of them. So, Well, that, 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 that is the practice for obeying the law, that, that someone with a gun will come and essentially force you to or yes. retaliate against you if you don't. Okay, that's, that's a way to enforce a law, but that's not how we enforce the law in America. Right. We don't have law enforcement. We have, you know... Uh, come up with the consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, we enforce our own laws in the United States. It's it, it's very different in other parts of the world where the government is perceived as illegitimate and people don't just simply follow the law. Right. Uh, here in America, we tend to. I mean, you can, you know, my kids like to leave their boogie boards out in front of the house. Mm. Shocking. All the time. Mm. And no one steals them. It's just, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I guess it could happen. There are exceptions happen. But in general, Americans obey the law. We feel, you know, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And don't you feel like a son? <laughs> Sometimes. I, I mean, a- after yesterday, well, because it's literally, we've, we've, we've reached a point where it's, it's literally a situation of, well, this rule applies to all of you little people. And, oh, by the way, we might apply it to you if you're a Republican and we feel like it. Uh, but everyone else, n- n- uh, nope, not so much. And it's um, and it, it's tremendously short-sighted. On the, the fact is, when you have a strong system like we do, or had a strong system, where, where we, we, we tend to feel the laws are legitimate, ironically, that allows a great deal of abuse. Because we tend to start look, we tend to look at the abuse of it as a a novelty, a one-off. Yeah. Like the uh, like 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 the O.J. Simpson trial verdict. Mm. People don't look at that as normal. They look at it as something weird and unusual. Okay, what happens if O.J. Simpson, you know, a guy favored by you know a certain group, is is put beyond uh, uh, accountability? Uh, uh, Normally, 
where it's expected. Suddenly, you have an entirely different social perspective on the law and the social contract. Hmm. And that's what that's what's happening. It's becoming expected. I mean, who's the guy who thought she was to be indicted? I mean, there were a few people. I, I thought so as Comey was talking, because that's what he was saying. But before that, I, I figured the fix was in. This is terrible. This is poison to our system. And, you know, the, uh, a widespread disrespect to the law and a widespread repudiation of the social contract uh, has very, very dangerous consequences. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. You're, you're exactly right. And, you know, I don't think that anyone would argue that our country doesn't have her problems right now, particularly when it comes to political elites. But uh, this week, we've been choosing to focus mostly on the good that is America, because I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in the Make America Great Again mantra that we forget how great America already is. And like you said, your, your kids can leave the boogie boards outside the house and, and you're not worried about them disappearing. And you, you know, you said I think you spent 28 years in the army. Thank you for your service. But you've uh, you've traveled the world. You've been all over the place. Despite everything that's going on and all the stuff that we can point at and say, look at this, this, this. Our country's going down the tubes. Blah blah blah. Compared to the rest of the world, what do we have here? What have we been given? And it, is it really that terrible? Well, I gotta say, I think it is that terrible. I think we are throwing away what made us special. And what made us special was a country where we felt we had a voice, we felt we had rights that are protected, we felt that justice was quite equal. And, uh, you know, I I had a sad Fourth of July. I had a sad Fourth of July because uh, so many people, either through ignorance or malice, have uh, uh, are disregarding what the framers put together for us. And it, 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 this, is, this is serious. And there is a significant part of the American population that repudiates basic, function, uh, basic features that made America great. The rule of law, the uh, respect for rights, checks and balances. All these things are under attack. Um, Hillary Clinton represents an attack on all of those things. Mm-hmm. And the thought of her being president... Uh, is terrifying because I've seen what happens when those things go out the window. And I do not put... I I believe that Hillary Clinton is elected, her combination of malice, leftist ideology, and stupidity. And understand, she is not a smart woman. Mm -hmm. She is a unwise, dumb, dumb woman who doesn't understand what she's doing. She doesn't understand the consequences of what she's doing. She gets lucky because of her enablers. Hmm. I think she. I think she can cause significant damage to the fabric of this country, up to and including actual violence. So, with what the so, found... I'm not in a real optimist place right now. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was catching on to that. Um, so we'll <laughs> just, we'll just go with your pessimistic side for now. With what the founders gave us with the rule of law, with what we've been entrusted with, what what do we do now? How do we preserve that? Well, I think we have to do a number of things. Uh, first of all is a practical thing, using the electoral system. We need to vote the down ballot, uh, you know, conservative people on the down sure. ballot. But as my uh, town hall tonight 
uh, recommends. And I am, you know, my, my, my I despise Trump credentials are fairly well established in the media. Um, we need to vote for Donald Trump. And the reason is he is the only person who can lead to a restoration of the rule of law and checks and balances. Not because he's a great person or even a good person. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Because no one will be checked and balanced like Donald Trump. However, Hillary Clinton will come in with a, uh, a Democrat establishment, the media, the courts, the bureaucrats, who will actively work to not check and balance her. Uh, plus a weak and feckless uh, uh, Republican GOP uh, congressional leadership that won't be able to. Uh, I think that's the first step. Create, create a situation where it is the interest of people to renew checks and balances. Mm. And believe me, if Donald Trump is elected, <laughs> he will be checked and balanced all over the place by everybody. <laughs> they will check and balance the heck out of this uh, the second thing is uh, uh, get angry and get militant. Say no. Refuse. Don't play along. Don't assist them. Uh, uh, reject and do not remain silent in the face of this uh, uh, abuse of our system. And where that means activism, uh, where that means donating money to the right causes, uh, you got to get in the game, you got to fight. Yes. And just, you know, by the way, for those of you listening, particularly if you happen to be with the FCC, in keeping with our nonprofit status, we don't actually officially endorse any candidate for office. But, you know, Kurt is welcome to say anything that he likes. <clears throat> and, uh. <laughs> no. right, look, isn't it, isn't it shameful that you have to get on the air and you have to. Blame that because there's it some really thing somewhere. It really this is, is disgusting. This is this is America. <laughs> First of all, you didn't you didn't do anything. You had a guest on who gave his opinion. His yes, I, who also his happens to be a lawyer. Right so you know, if the said lawyer gets us in trouble, then we just be like, hey, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the, it, aren't you a little disgusted that the idea that somebody saying you should do this politically? could, quote, get you in trouble. It, it is doesn't sad. Doesn't that rub you the wrong way? It just doesn't seem like it matches with my constitutional rights. It really doesn't. But, you know, like we discussed earlier, I'm not really sure if I if I have those rights all the time and what rules apply to me and which ones don't. So, you know, I'm just... I, well, I, I'm sure they apply to you more than they apply to some leftists. But probably so. Probably so. So, okay, I'm going to try one more time to get something positive and happy and encouraging out of you. Do you have all right, let's, let's a give it favorite... Roll the dice. Okay, do you have a favorite founding father? Uh, George Washington. Why? Army officer, uh, incredible integrity, incredible toughness, knew how to lead from the front, personal courage. Um, he was a player. Yeah, you know, ladies dug him. He had the tuckets. Guy had the uh, guy had mad money. Great mm. guy all around. Wow. Okay. So on that uh, on that note, um, yes, <laughs> great. I you know. You you have a gift. He, he was sort of the Biggie Smalls of uh, you know the founding fathers. So was he the first president or the eighth president? Just for fun. I think he was the first. You think he was? Hmm. I think. You think? I don't know. You think that he? Yeah, sure. You're not sure. Do you not even understand why I'm asking you that question right now? 
I have no idea. You don't. Okay. Well, because he was the first elected by we the people. However, we had seven presidents prior to him that were elected by Congress. I don't count the Articles of Confederation. <laughs> I don't recognize them. I also don't recognize the state of, of, of Nebraska. The state of Nebraska? Okay. Well, to me, it just doesn't exist. That, I kind of feel that way about New Jersey, except I have some friends there. But, you know, that's just neither here nor there. The crossing of the Delaware was cool, though. Your 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 boy Washington was involved in that one. Anyway. Yeah, it was like on my birthday. Was it on your birthday? Day before Christmas. Hey. Started their movement. Christmas Eve. They knew. Yeah. See, Washington knew. He said, one day there's going to be a boy born who's going to admire me so much. So that's why we need to cross tonight. doesn't have anything to do with strategy. It's all because... Kurt is going to be born. Of Kurt. Yes. Let's sneak up on him at night while they're drunk. Take him out. Yes. Exactly the kind of thing I would have done. It, Never fight fair. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, we are out of time. Kurt, thank you for being here. Where can people find you hey, on Facebook you, and Twitter? Oh, go find me on Twitter. At, on Twitter. Uh, just go for the hashtag caring. Also, uh, <laughs> check me out on Town Hall every Monday and Thursday. I have one coming up tonight at midnight. Awesome. All right. Kurt, we appreciate you being here. Everyone else, don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. We're going to play a song. What are we going to play? We're going to play This Land is Your Land, Woody Guthrie. Here's a good old classic for you, and we'll be back in just a minute to continue our I Love America and American Heroes Tribute Week. Stay tuned. And welcome back. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM. You can stream us online at kvxl101.com. You can also find podcasts of the show on SoundCloud and iTunes. So we're continuing our I Love America and American Heroes Week. That was uh, retired Army Colonel Kurt Schlichter. He's done some pretty amazing things, written a number of books. He's on Fox News often. He's one of the few guests that can actually leave me speechless because... Um, he is 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 just you know that kind of a person so but he's also a good friend always been very kind but anyway we are going to continue actually we're not going to continue we're going to wrap things up with this because we are focusing on our founders our founding documents all these good things a loftier genius nor pure patriot wore the... S- no, no, it's that's it's supposed to start with no. No loftier genius nor pure patriot wore the senatorial robe during the struggle for independence than John Adams. He was born at Braintree, now Quincy in Massachusetts, on the 30th of, 30th of October, 1735. He was a direct lineal descendant in the fourth generation from Henry Adams, who fled the persecutions in England during the reign of Charles I. His maternal ancestor was John Alden, a passenger in the Mayflower, and thus the subject of our memoir inherited from both parental ancestors the title of a son of liberty, which was subsequently given to him and others. So basically, John Adams was as American as the founding fathers could possibly be. His mom's ancestors came over on the Mayflower, and his dad's side fled persecution, Christian persecution in England. 
Maybe something you didn't know. His primary education was derived in a school at Braintree, and there he passed through a preparatory course of instruction for Harvard University, where he graduated at just 20 years old. Having chosen the law as a profession, he entered upon the study of it with an eminent barrister in Worcester by the name of Putnam. There he had the advantage of sound legal instruction, and through Mr. Putnam, he became acquainted with many distinguished public men, among whom was Mr. Gridley, the Attorney General. Their first interview awakened sentiments of mutual regard, and young Adams was allowed the free use of Mr. Gridley's extensive library, a privilege of great value in those days. It was a rich treasure thrown open to him, and its value was soon apparent in the expansion of his general knowledge. He was admitted to the bar in 1758 and commenced practice in Braintree. At an early period, young Adams' mind was turned to the contemplation of the general politics of his country, and the atmosphere of liberal principles in which he had been born and nurtured gave a patriotic bias to his judgment and feelings. He watched narrowly the movements of the British government toward the American colonies and was ever outspoken in his condemnation of its oppressive acts. He was admitted as a barrister in 1761, and as his professional business increased and his acquaintance among distinguished politicians extended, he became more publicly active until in 1765, when the Stamp Act had raised a perfect hurricane in America, he wrote and published his essay on the canon and federal law. This production at once placed him in high popular esteem in the same year he was associated with James Otis and others to demand in the presence of the royal governor that the court should dispense with the use of the stamped paper in the administration of justice. So because one young man wrote an essay, essentially, he eventually went on to sign the declaration and become second president. In 1766, Mr. Adams married Abigail Smith, the amiable daughter of a pious clergyman of Braintree, and soon afterward he removed to Boston. There he actively associated with Hancock, Otis, and others in the various measures in favor of the liberties of the people, and was very energetic in endeavors to have the military removed from the town. Governor Bernard endeavored to bribe him to silence by offers of lucrative offices, but they were all rejected with disdain. When after the Boston Massacre, Captain Preston and his men were arraigned for murder, Mr. Adams was applied to to act as counsel in their defense. Popular favor on one side and the demands of justice and humanity on the other were the horns of the dilemma between which Mr. Adams was placed by the application. But he was not long in choosing. He accepted the invitation. He defended the prisoner successfully. Captain Prescott was acquitted, and notwithstanding the tremendous excitement that existed against the soldiers, the patriotism of Mr. Adams was too far above suspicion to make this, this defense of the enemy a cause for withdrawing from him the confidence with which the people reposed in him. His friends applauded him for the act and the people were satisfied as was evident by their choosing him that same year a representative in the provincial assembly. There's a lot in that story that's an amazing story. You should go look it up. Look up John Adams defense Captain Preston. Really, really cool story. Mr. Adams became very obnoxious to both Governors Bernard and Hutchinson. He was elected to a seat in the Executive Council, but the latter erased his name. He was again elected when Governor Gage assumed authority, and he, too, erased his name. These things only served, however, to increase his popularity. Soon after the accession of Gage, the Assembly at Salem, 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 adopted a proposition for a general congress and elected five delegates thereto in spite of the efforts of the governor to prevent it. John Adams was one of those delegates and took his seat in the first continental congress convened in Philadelphia on the 5th of September 1774. He was again elected a delegate in 1775 and through his influence... Because of John Adams, George Washington of Virginia was elected commander-in-chief of all the forces of the United Colonies. On the 6th of May, 1776, Mr. Adams introduced a motion in Congress that the colonies should form governments independent of the crown. 
Did you catch that? Mr. Adams introduced the motion in Congress that the colonies should form governments independent of the crown. This motion was equivalent to a declaration of independence, and when a month afterward Richard Henry Lee introduced a motion more explicitly to declare the colonies free and independent, Mr. Adams was one of its warmest advocates. He was appointed one of the committee to draft the Declaration of Independence, and he placed his signature to that document on the 2nd of August, 1776. After the Battle of Long Island, he was appointed by Congress with Dr. Franklin and Edward Rutledge to meet Lord Howe in conference upon Staten Island concerning the pacification of the colonies. According to his prediction, that mission failed. Notwithstanding his great labors in Congress, he was appointed a member of the Council of Massachusetts while on a visit home in 1776, the duties of which he faithfully fulfilled. In 1777, Mr. Adams was appointed a special commissioner to the Court of France, whither Dr. Franklin had previously gone. Finding the subject of his mission fully attended to by Franklin, Adams returned home in 1779. He was immediately called to the duty of forming a constitution for his native state. While in the discharge of his duty in convention, Congress also appointed him a minister to Great Britain to negotiate a treaty of peace and commerce with that government. He left Boston in the French frigate La Sensible in October 1777, and after a long passage landed in Spain, where he journeyed by land to Paris. He found England indisposed for peace if American independence was to be the sin quo not, and was about to return home when he received from Congress the appointment of commissioner to Holland to negotiate a treaty of amity and commerce with the states general. The confidence of Congress in him was unlimited, and he was entrusted at one time with the execution of no less than six missions, each of a different character. During the remainder of the year 1776 and until December 1777, he was a member of 90 different committees and chairman of 25. Wow. In 1781, he was associated with Franklin, Jay, and Lawrence as a commissioner to conclude treaties of peace with the European powers. In 1782, he assisted in negotiating a commercial treaty with Great Britain and was the first of the American commissioners who signed the definitive treaty of peace with that power. In 1784, Mr. Adams returned to Paris, and in January of 1785, he was appointed minister for the United States at the court of Great Britain. That post he honorably occupied until 1788 when he resigned the office and returned home. While Mr. Adams was absent, the federal constitution was adopted and it received his hearty approval. He was placed upon the ticket with Washington for vice president at the first election under the new constitution and was elected to that office. He was re-elected to the same office in 1792 and in 1796 he was chosen to succeed Washington in the presidential chair. In 1801 he officially retired from public life. In 1816, he was placed on the Democratic ticket as presidential elector. In 1818, he lost his wife, with whom he had lived 52 years in uninterrupted joy. In 1834, he was chosen a member of the Convention of Massachusetts to revise its constitution and was chosen president of that body, which honor he declined on account of his great age. In 1825, he had the felicity of seeing his son elevated to the presidency of the United States. In the spring of 1826, his physical powers rapidly declined, and on the 4th of July of that year... He expired in the 92nd year of his age. On the very same day, and at nearly the same hour, his fellow committeeman in drawing up the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, also died. It was the 50th anniversary of that glorious act, and the coincidence made a deep impression upon the public mind. And now you know a little bit more about John Adams, one of the greatest founders of our country, and he did a lot more than simply serve as president and sign the Declaration. And that's taken from Lives of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence. It's an 1848 original book that was reprinted by wall builders. They have a lot of great uh, old books and old documents where you can learn 
things that you're you're not just you're just not going to find it in modern history books. It's Lives of the Signers. You can read about this. Was one actually one of my textbooks in high school. Uh, there's a, a companion book that goes with it that's called Wives of the Signers. So you have Lives of the Signers and Wives of the Signers, and they were uh, part of my history curriculum. And you can learn about literally every single signer of the Declaration of Independence, who they were, what they did, where they grew up, all kinds of really just intriguing things. I'd encourage you to grab it. It's a great book, Lives of the Signers. We're going to finish today with Michael W. Smith singing There She Stands. And we will see you tomorrow. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas.